0: Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner.
1: And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Hi, this is Adam Schwartz, the guest co-host on the
0: Emerging Biotech Leader today, subbing in for Kim Kushner, who's out on maternity leave and, and, and doing great. I'm going to do my best to Uh, sub in and and replicate her as best I can. I'm here today with Victoria Nicholas, the CMO of Oak Hill Bio, and we're really interested in learning today a little bit about her journey uh, with Oak Hill and and previous to that uh, as she was uh, in research uh, and, you know, moving through in her career uh, into Takeda and into pharma and and elsewhere. Uh, So, Victoria, welcome welcome to uh, the podcast today.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Adam. It's great to be here.
0: Could you maybe give us a little bit of an overview of your background to, to start off and then obviously love to dig in and, and, and learn, uh, you know, s- some best practices and ideas that you have?
2: Yeah, certainly. So I've been in pharma for about seven years, um, and that was a journey that I made from uh, academic practice. I was an academic neonatologist, translational scientist, sort of, you know, rising through the ranks in academia, uh, most recently at, at UCLA here in Los Angeles, where I'm based, and it occurred to me and all the work that I had done and people I'd influenced, you know, patients have always been the center of everything I've done, the science I've done um, and led. And I began to feel as if I wanted a bigger stage with which to have an impact, you know, particularly in the care of extremely premature newborns where, you know, development, drug development in that area hasn't, you know, rivaled that of, of, of other areas. And so in thinking about how best to do that, I was very fortunate in that I was approached by the CEO at Prolacta Bioscience, who said, you know, we'd love to have you come and join us as our first chief medical and scientific officer. We'd like to move our products, which are essentially nutritional products derived from, from human milk. We'd like to, you know, look at our pipeline, figure out how to improve milk economics, expand product development, and given your work in, you know, developmental mucosal immunology, and in particular, human recombinant lactoferrin, you seem like a great fit. And so I did thinking about that and, you know, shared it with, with my mentors in the space and, you know, people are, well, you're leaving academics. That's, there's uncertainty there. You know, And I think not having a good view of that. So I took that opportunity, joined Prolacta and essentially never looked back. Um, and I was very fortunate to be recruited from Prolacta to join Takeda Pharmaceuticals to lead a drug pipeline focus on extremely premature newborns. So has you know, 25 years of my career caring for those infants at the bedside. Um, and so that was the opportunity that then led me to become the chief medical officer at Oak Hill Bio uh, because Takeda opted to out-license that program. And I couldn't see fit from the chair I sat in at Takeda and all of the positive things I had done to really uh, develop that program. I could not see going forward in my career without being a continued, you know, having a continued impact on that program. And so once the deal was done, I, you know, got into contact with those at, at Oak Hill Bio and said, look, this is my passion, this is what I'd love to do. And I'd like, you know, to be considered as a part of this, this opportunity. Um, and as it turned out, um, given that I had a history in, 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 uh, in immunology, A number of the other assets were actually in the autoimmune space. So it was really probably one of the first opportunities I've ever seen where you can practice as a neonatologist and leverage your experience in immunology. So it was a perfect kind of a lining up of me. And, you know, I was very fortunate to make that transition uh, at the top of 2022. So that's where I am. Um, But there was a lot of me in the academic space for a long time that led to, you know, my, my confidence in making that, that switch.
1: Uh, I was just going to ask, and uh, you mentioned about transitioning from academia to pharma. What what are some of those? I mean, that's that's not a that's not an easy thing to do necessarily. Uh, what are some of the transferable skills uh, that you use? Maybe one or two from academia that that you possess that was really helpful uh, to make that transition to um, to the pharmaceutical industry.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one is particularly as a neonatologist, where you sit. In an incredibly busy, active clinical space, you've got to multitask all the time. So, the patient's in front of you, yet there are conferences to hold with family. So, you've got to have space for that, space for lab results, interpretation. So, multitasking, you know, sort of utilizing um, all of those skills. The other thing about neonatology is the neonatal intensive care unit doesn't function without a leader. And so you have to be able to leverage input from other leaders. You know, cardiothoracic surgeons come in with their opinions about what needs to happen. You've got to interact at that level, appreciate that information, interpret it, and then tell the team how to execute. And that goes from all the physicians to the nurses to the social workers to the families who ultimately are important. So multitasking leadership. And then another really, really important uh, aspect is guarded optimism, because, you know, if you didn't believe in that, it would be almost impossible to keep yourself short up to be that best representative in, in, in all of those functions. So I think being optimistic, but, you know, and, and not necessarily guardedly so, but just re- realistically optimistic, always. Yes. Cautiously, right. And then thriving and surviving on, you know, not much sleep. <laughs> That's the yeah. other piece.
0: And Victoria, you mentioned some of your colleagues in academia sort of warning you as you were thinking about taking that step into pharma. And it's obviously something that many medical professionals and scientists go through that they're, you know, in academia and they're thinking about whether or not it's a good step for them. What, what are some of the things that maybe colleagues of yours were warning you about? And then what were some things, you know, were they, were they true? Were they, or were they not accurate? Um, you know, what did, what did you find once you got to the other side?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest one is there was a perception. I think it's a dying perception that when you transition to pharma or drug development from that side, you're selling yourself out. All you really care about is the big paycheck and you're going to, you know, work nine to five and live on a yacht somewhere in the south of France. So you're selling out from what's absolutely, you know, essential when you commit to an academic career, because those pieces are not necessarily what's driving your, your commitment. So I think most people spoke from that. You join pharma, now all of a sudden you're going to have fudged clinical trials. You're going to lose your objectivity. You're going to become tremendously biased. And, you know, that's a bad thing. I think that's less of a sentiment now. And I think there have been changes to the industry. There may be, you know, sordid tales that we could all sit around and tell, but I think that was the number one uh, and, and the biggest one. Um, and then some other minor things might be, you know, you're really deserting the patients. You are really deserting the patients. And so that, you know, just as an aside was a very important thing for me when I transition from Prolacta to Takeda, that, that the, the, the patients that, you know, I have cared for for 25 years at the bedside are really front and center for me. That is, you know, my heart is tied to that. Um, I'm not, you know, agnostic to what I do because I'm driven by the desire to make things better.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I hear that for a lot, from a lot of the academicians that they do make that transition over. That actually is is the patient is in, in the center of their thinking, and that's the reason that they make that transition to be able to make an impact of a, as a, as a much more expansive, you know, path uh, as well, and have that opportunity to do that from from the beginning when the drug is is being developed or preclinical and through the whole process of the clinical development. Um, why do you think why do you think that stigma is is out there? Is it just lack of lack of education or understanding knowledge about what pharma does. And I agree with you that it's, it's not as much as it used to be maybe 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, uh, but it's still there. Is that, is that because the training in our medical school and pharmacy school or, uh, is, is not designed that way? Or what do you think that
2: is? Yeah, so a great question. I do think it is less now. I think a lot of it has to do with just no exposure to that, there there's no class in medical school where you go where you go to learn the the pharmaceutical drug development process. So it is a gap, um, but appreciation for what pharmacy is pharma, the pharmaceutical industry and biotech are doing to expand drug development. I think that sentiment people completely understand um, and get, but so much of it, I think, is just not being aware of the nuances of it. Number one, uh, number two, the expense of it. And number three, how long it takes, you know, to have a robust process to prove efficacy with an appropriate safety profile. Um, but I think all of this is, is improving. I think, and, and then as well, there's a lot more transparency in terms of what drug development is. And, you know, you know, one of the silver linings of, of, of the COVID pandemic was people became a lot more aware of what it takes to bring drugs through development and and the processes and the safety checks and, and all of that. So the world is more in tune, you know, with this. And that, you know, also stems obviously to the academic health centers and physicians uh, and other health professionals.
0: That's a really good point. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned was sort of this concern of like a separation from the patient, if you, you know, moving from academia in, into industry is Obviously, your relationship with the patient changes, but have you found that you feel like you have less of an impact, or more, or the same? Like, how has that how has that changed for you?
2: Yeah. So, at an, a one on one level, yes, because I'm not at the bedside. But from where I, you know, really had seen myself evolve, I will always have deep empathy for patients and and want to do the best that I can. But I feel very satisfied that, you know, for example, at Oak Hill Bio, I'm driving development of, of uh, you know, a meta, um, uh, uh, OHB 607, which has the potential to change the trajectory. So I don't have to sit and remind myself why I'm doing that, that there are patients on the other end. But I also am involved in other activities that keep me very close to the patient experience. You know, my work with Patient organizations, advocacy organizations, conversations um, across the board—you know—keep it front and center for me. So I don't, I don't feel that I'm uh, no longer, you know, in the mix, um, as it were.
1: And uh, I want to ask you a question um, about the outlicense, outlicensing agreement, and and establishing that agreement with Takeda and kind of navigating the, the waters through to the asset to the Oak Hill, uh, as the CMO. Uh, what did that take? How did you negotiate that, that strategy or what was, what were your negotiating strategy? What regulatory aspects you had to kind of consider in that, in that whole process? Um, I mean, basically how, how did you make that happen? I think this will be one area that our audience will be very interested to know how to do.
2: Yeah. So one of the things remain when, Takeda made the decision to out-license, I was sitting in the global program leader seat. And that was an opportunity that came to me because the previous global program leader had left the company. And I had joined Takeda to lead their medical affairs uh, group in this area. So it was a tremendous opportunity that I was able to take, but that became available to me. So my primary responsibility at the time the um, out-licensing was made aware all of us, one was shoring up the team because I think, you know, given the nature of the population and the incredible connections that that people on our team at Takeda had developed, you know, we had to take the view that it's not over, okay? This doesn't mean these patients will never receive this um, uh, drug in the longer term. So Shoring everybody up and keeping people laser focused on that. And the second thing was helping develop the message. How do you, because from Takeda's perspective, I was sitting there as the representative, as the one who was going to develop interest among the external parties. So, how do you message that? Um, And that was, you know, a process with, you know, um, lots and lots of hours on Zoom calls. All of the out was done in a separate group at Takeda. And so the next time I picked it back up was when I was now sitting in the Oak Hill bio seat. So I didn't have a lot of input into the out other than to say, here's why this is absolutely critical to continue development. Here's what you need to understand about these incredibly fragile newborns. And why this drug is going to be transformational, which is obviously you know about not the medical, uh, not the uh, legal, financial aspects of it, but the underpinning of its success.
0: Right, and it, it, it's interesting because you you know by continuing to work with the program, you kind of have had this journey now where you've transitioned, you know, from a large pharmaceutical company into an emerging biotech environment. But staying with the same program, how have you found that experience to be? Obviously, there are different challenges when you don't have all the structure uh, and organization around you that a you know large organization like Takeda can provide.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I would say you know simply eye opening from the perspective of you don't really appreciate the depth behind all of the functions that you're using on a day to day level with through a quick email, you, you know, you may get back the input of 20 people and it's in one email. And so in the biotech, you know, world, it's a thinner team with fewer experts. Um, And so I think I understand the asset to a degree that far exceeds anything I ever could have probably developed at Takeda had it continued to grow grow there. So learning the deep nuances of CMC strategy, for example, was never something that I necessarily needed to know. I just needed the soundbite or statistical modeling or regulatory strategy, all of those things. Um, I am a lot more comfortable with comprehensive understanding um, that's kind of the way my mind works so having had the opportunity, it's absolutely fantastic that I've that I've had that because I know we can you know represent the drug uh, more completely the opportunity more completely and in the end execute more completely I mean that's true not only for me as the chief medical officer but our our, our CSO, our CFO, our, our regulatory strategy or excuse me our, uh, um, investor strategy team. We are all have all become, you know, the experts in 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 this asset. You know, I of course hold the medical expertise because of those twenty five years of standing at the bedside doing. So it's you know that was one of the big big transitions from pharma to biotech and that in that process.
1: And you know, Victoria, what about areas? And tell me if this was a, this was challenging or not what about the areas like uh, fundraising for instance uh, or 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 dealing and communicating with the with the investors community and and that's not necessarily an area that that the Cmo is the expert at you know coming especially in your case coming twenty five years from uh, treating uh, treating the patients how do you how do you build that up uh, I'm sure at the beginning it might have been challenging and where do you and how do you how do you learn those to become uh, expertise as much as you can.
2: Yeah. So the back story is that even in the academic world, I was always the front person for bringing funding for research in medicine. And obviously, it's very different because a lot of that funding came from, um, you know, philanthropic organizations who had earmarked the funds, you know, regardless, almost not, no, I shouldn't say regardless, but basically they were going to your organization, but you had to put what was happening at the hospital for extremely premature newborns, if it were that space have to put it into a soundbite that makes sense. You want to invest in research in this hospital for these reasons. So that's always been a part of of, of who, who I am. Now, some of the big differences are, you know, the investor community may be more or less aware of the challenges of extremely premature newborns. And, you know, one has to be very selective as to how you describe things, because if I tell you you're investing in an extremely fragile um, population, you're thinking, well, how successful that will that ever be if it's that fragile? You know, so really learning how to communicate in ways that are tethered to, secure, to certainty, yet um, really treat in a very honest way. You know what? How your drug is actually going to make make that make that better. Um, and I will say, you know, we started with the pitch deck that I developed at Takeda, and I was actually thrilled to see some of my same slides in the original pitch deck. Um, but we've done a lot of modification because if I say one thing one way, and an investor responds in way X or way Y, you know, pretty much it's working or it's not. And so it was really learning um, for all of us, I think, as to, you know, how you do it. And of course you can get training on how to give a pitch in eight minutes and leave the room, you know, with everybody behind you. It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and as well, you know, getting out of, if you put a physician scientist in a room with 10 slides, the presentation you get is very different than you put the CFO in the room with those 10 slides. So it's learning to use the corporate language, you know, putting that into your own words. Because if you take away the thing that makes it unique to me, it then becomes a recording that anybody can give. Um, so really understanding what are the key words or key phrases or, you know, uh, without sounding, you know, superficial that you need to use, what works for people. And so that the community can say, Hey, yeah, I get that. Okay. Fragile, but yet, you know, resilient and therefore we can, and you know, that, that whole thing. So learning that language. And then there's also the other language of of finance, which I have to say in the beginning was just mind boggling because when there are conversations around financial terms, you know, you've actually never heard them before. I was like, what on earth is a pipe? What on earth? You know, those kinds of things. So once you get the dictionary, you know, it's like immunology. Once you have the dictionary of immunology, actually you can understand it. And so it was really building through a very informal process, the dictionary that goes with pitching a very important clinical stage asset to the financial community so that it sticks. And doesn't frighten
1: anybody away. It's it almost like you have to go back to school, kind of learn certain things, so you can speak that language with your community. Which is, I was just thinking as you were as you were talking that is not is not that much different than when you have to talk to a parent of a child, right? And you have to speak their language to be able to to relay with them what the whatever whatever it is that you're trying to communicate with them, and also be relevant for them so they walk away educated and, and knowledgeable about the situation.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I would I would say that parents in my view are easier, but I've had 25 years to 30 years of experience, so I can't right. can't really say right. that.
1: That's another transferable skills that we were talking about earlier yeah. when we started
2: the exactly. podcast. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So Victoria, you've been in this in this role
0: of CMO for, you know, relatively short period of time, and it sounds like you've had a lot to learn. Quickly, certainly on like the investor presentation, fundraising pieces that we were just talking about. And I'm sure, you know, a myriad of other areas because the role of the CMO is so complex. Are there certain things or tools that you've been drawing from in order to sort of get, you know, learn quicker and, and try to make, you know, make progress faster?
2: Yeah. So I did probably what anybody new to a role would do is you go to see, is there a book? that says, this is what you'll do as a CMO. This is how you'll handle various things. And certainly there are leadership, you know, texts that speak to the roles, but there is no book for that. And so, you know, one of the things that's always been really important in my, across my life really is, you know, using mimicry that fits with who you are. So really, you know, paying attention to how, People are speaking, I watch CMOs at, at at some of these investor conferences and looking to see, you know, what is their body language? How are they phrasing things? What are they doing? Grabbing conversations when I can. I have some, some close colleagues that have been very successful um, in in drug development and just trying to extract nuggets of of what they've done and how they behave and how they prioritize. But everything in the end has to fit with who I am. Um, and you know, so, so there's no book, but there, you know, there are resources, obviously, as I mentioned, you know, you can speak to somebody who does pitches and they can listen to you pitch and they can tell you everything you do wrong. And you take that and consider that success, right? Because if they tell you you're doing everything right, then there's something wrong with that consultant. Right. Um, then you haven't,
0: haven't found the right expert yet.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's just, it's shaping, you know, there, there are obvious things, right? You've got to be able to speak to investors, you gotta be able to speak to KOL groups, other HCPs, advocacy, and so on. But you learn by experience and the world is obviously critical, but it's not unendingly critical to the point that you can't pivot you know, and, and, and make a change and be in one's own mind better the next time. Because a lot of, What I've learned through life is that we are our own biggest critic. And so what you perceive as being like a total disaster on the outside, you know, actually, that was great. Thank you so much. So we learn from that as well. We learn to shape how we respond when you're on the spot and, you know, things that things that you're doing. So no book uh, that I would have to recommend. But one of the biggest things, just learning from the environment around you, being willing to change and modify, um, you know, your behaviors, the way you speak, and
1: and things like that. No, I that's a really good point, and and also being being okay with not knowing and and looking bad, which is not necessarily an easy thing, right? Uh, it's that also kind of opens up the door, kind of having to keep in an open mind that oh yeah, I, I really didn't know that, and, and maybe I shouldn't have said that, and be okay with that rather than uh, than pretending. Um, you mentioned mentorship, um, and I wonder. And, and Adam also brought up if, if there was other what are tools, there's what, is, what are things that you use. Yes, there's no book, but there's there's nowhere better than learning from others who've gone through that same experience and being a mentee uh, in that in that particular relationship or a mentor for others. What are some of your thoughts there? Can you think of an example or a situation that having a mentor was very helpful? Um, And then also, are are you mentoring others that are kind of maybe uh, earlier in their career?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I have a whole cast of people that I've collected across my journey in life um, that I consider, you know, mentors or sponsors, you know, somebody who's really willing to say, take this person, they can do it, and they'll fall on the sword for you. Um, And so you might imagine, given the diversity of my career from you know, basic science uh, in graduate school in biochemistry where I, you know, came to Harvard to say, I am going to be a scientist because that's what I felt comfortable saying. Yet deep in me was, I really want to be a doctor directing the best science to improve the health care of those people. And for me, I had to get my head around that to be able to say it to proceed down the medical route, which I did pretty quickly after arriving at Harvard, and fortunately, I had the mentors that supported that, you know, whereas the mentor I had as an undergraduate was very much, sell yourself as a physician, you're giving up on science, you know, so pivoting and switching and and still other fantastic advice, don't say it was wrong, it was just the mentor's perspective, which is how it all, how it all comes. And so across my career and the different institutions across time, I've picked up mentors along the way. And even in making the transition from um, academics to prolactal bioscience, I leveraged a lot of my mentors. And I mentioned uh, one in particular who has been very successful in drug development, somebody I met while I was an associate professor at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Our labs were next door to each other. And so, you know, she took an idea and it was picked up and she developed it and she won. And so the moment the opportunity presented itself to me, I was discussing it with her and saying, you know, risk, benefit. And she said, all benefit. You know, knowing who you are, knowing the stage you're, you're craving, stage meaning terms of impact, you need to go for it. And then there were, you know, bits and pieces, bits and pieces elsewhere that supported that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how important, right, your sort of network and maintaining those mentors becomes for you, especially, you know, later and later in your career as things get more complicated and as your skill set and job requirements become more and more multivariate, you need different types of advice, like exactly like what you were talking about before in terms of your role at Oak Hill and how, because it's a smaller company, you're wearing lots of different hats. It's one of the most challenging parts of the role of the chief medical officer is that you have to be the expert in the product and you have to be a great clinician and a great drug developer and a great fundraiser and a great leader and a great communicator. There's just so many. I probably just left off seven or eight other things you need to be great at as the as the chief medical officer.
2: Yeah. But, you know, it's that's a fantastic fit for who I am because I think um, I'm not, you know, if it were a single thing, if we could define a single thing, I'd have to be great. at, I, I would feel as if I wasn't working hard enough. So, you know, there are dangers, obviously, in, in, in both of those scenarios, and we're making it very black and white. But I know when I've sought change in my career, it's because I feel like, you know, I got that. I know how to resuscitate Every sort of baby there is. I know how to call in a transfer. I know how to put in this sort of do this sort of procedure. And there's just this yearning and desire to be on the edge of new learning. So you know, lifelong learning. Sometimes people would would refer to it as that. But I like to stay fresh and challenged. <laughs> you know, because in in opportunity there is challenge. But you know, generally for me it leads to you know what I'm what I'm really striving for.
1: Right. The learning agility that you're referring to, it's, it's absolutely a key for success. And you don't have to be a physician. And if you think about it in, in our life, just having that learning agility for, for anything that we do is kind of pushes you forward another one or two steps. And then it keeps building on each other, uh, and, and willingness, willingness to learn on that. Um, that this is great advice that you're giving, but uh, what what advice will you have? What are the one or two advice that you'll have for someone earlier in their career? Maybe maybe they're in academia, they're considering maybe pharma, uh, maybe they're an investigator on studies, and and they're thinking about well, maybe maybe I should make that switch and go to pharma, or maybe they're in earlier stages in, as a CMO, and they're getting a little bit frustrated that that you know there's you know it's it's, it's a rough road ahead. Uh, What are the two or three uh, key advice you would have for them?
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, um, and it it depends on stage. I mean, the other thing is I have a whole list of people that I have mentored. And in fact, um, you know, many still keep in touch and reflect on those days when I said X. And they made, you know, life-changing decisions because of that. So I think I, you know, if somebody wants to change their situation. I, you know, I think reflection on why is important, that it's not, you know, something that's fixable. And usually by the time people are bringing it up, particularly sophisticated people, it's, it's not that, you know, it's that they don't like living in Los Angeles. It's not at that level. It's they this desire or this, you know, appetite to add things. And so, I advise people, you know, all the time, the Pediatric Academic Society's meeting is one of the largest uh, pediatric-based meetings, which happens to be very research-focused. I will always make an attempt and go around and, to the posters, because that's where you find the very young, you know, just getting started, undergraduates, medical students, fellows, and so on. And in many of those conversations, they look at your badge and say, oh, you're at Oak Hill. What is that? And then, you know, they would mention, I'm very interested in that. I said, here's my phone number. You know, let's try and reach out or follow up on this. And then, you know, it leads to further, further, further conversations. So advice is if you're, if you're really feeling in you the desire to make a change, then take steps to begin to make that change. Um, You know, part of it too is, you know, how do you go from academics To the pharmaceutical industry or biotech, we have to be recognized. So if you sit in the back of the room and never ask a question, you don't raise your hand, you don't go forward, you know, to that booth at that, that very, very large meeting that has a product in the area that you're interested in, strike up a conversation with, you know, the business development team and say, Hey, you know, I have some new data on this. It may or may not lead anywhere. But if you look for, you know, opportunities around physician um, investigator led research opportunities, those are oftentimes gateways in. And mine was, you know, one where the CEO uh, who was very inquisitive and kept his eye out for milk related research came to me and said, you know, so making yourself visible is one of the key aspects and then keep, you know, keep at it. Don't get discouraged. And then once you get there, realize that you are the learner. And I think, um, you know, I think challenge, transitions are hard when you feel like you're the one who knows everything. You know, res- research process, clinical development is very different than academic led, can be very different than academic led research from a time and money perspective, critically from a focus perspective. I mean, you know, shaping your ideas, um, putting them into sound bites—all those things um, are super important. But I think opportunity, you know, opportunity is risk, and if that is not a good balance for you, you're going to know it very, very quickly. If opportunity is driving the energy that you have to do it even more, then you know, um, then it's it's definitely a path path to go to go with
1: and it's certainly not not for everyone either and i think that's perfectly okay too yeah
2: right? absolutely
1: you have to be okay with that right
2: absolutely
0: well, i think the thought that that you're kind of the learner when you uh, move into some sort of new role really resonated with me i think that's a really interesting point victoria and like and it really is for any role in an organization like even as a cmo right you're learning new things every day and we often talk to new leaders about that need for, you know, when you first get into a new role in an organization, the first thing you should be doing is learning. You don't know everything about that organization or that program that you're working with or that disease state. Even if, you know, you're an expert in one of those areas, there's always things to be learning and you really want to be onboarding as much of that information first as you're thinking about strategies and how are we going to improve and what are some of the next steps, right? And always just thinking about the fact that, you know, you're, you're continually learning. There's always something new uh, in any kind of new innovative challenge.
2: Yeah. I think the other thing I just, you know, want to mention in terms of once having made the decision that you're interested, identifying that opportunity and then evaluating that opportunity um you know there's so many things that go into job descriptions you know is it a virtual company <laughs> is it you know we are a virtual company but i think a, v- a critical aspect that i can uh, that i would you know say and attribute our success is uh, you know are the people i work with um and i've been you know treasured to you know really um have to applaud my colleagues Um, you know, and all that they've done to transition my role from, you know, academics to pharma to biotech. Um, I think that's been a really, really key piece.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point, especially for like really any organization and team, but especially a small organization, small team, you really need to learn everybody's skills and strengths and, you know, how how to all work together. I I think that's a, that's sort of a great, a great thought to, uh, Maybe, maybe end our, our conversation uh, on today. Really appreciate the, the discussion, Victoria, and I think uh, you provided us with a, a lot to think about and a lot of uh, helpful advice.
2: Yeah, well, it was a great pleasure.
1: A lot of great insights.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Rameen and Adam. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an
0: SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSISTrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review.